And, and our boss, who was a guy called Sam Leach, came from Fleet Street, from the Sun and another paper, I can't remember which. Um, but he once said to me, just, you sh you've got to watch David. Follow what he does. Do things his way. And I said, Sam, I will learn a lot from David Coleman. I know I will, and from a lot of other people as well. But I would rather fail as the first Barry Davis rather than succeed as a second David Coleman. Welcome to the latest episode of Wearing the Red and Green. In this week's podcast, I speak to former Windsor and president and a legend of television commentary, Barry Davis. Barry spent over 35 years on Match of the Day. He commentated on 10 World Cups and 17 Olympic Games. This episode was a real privilege to record, and we discuss the countless stories from Barry's life behind the microphone, his time as president of Windsor and Eton, and how his appreciation of non-league football began whilst following Finchley back in their Athenian league days. But before we start our conversation, let's have a quick listen to a selection of clips from one of the great commentators of our time. I hope you enjoy the episode. Oh, man, big. Oh, they score! Beautiful pull down by Burkham! Oh, what a goal! Dennis Burkham has won it for Holland! Aguirre, Negrete! Lee, interesting, very interesting, oh, look at his face, just look at his face. Well taken by Walsh, Davis is on the far side, Ainsco coming square, that's the ball, that's a good try, what a goal, oh what a goal to the side, surely. Gascoigne going to have a crack, he is you know, oh I say. Maradona just walked away from Hoddle then. Valdano, Smoke and Maradona! They're appealing for offside. The ball came back off the foot of Steve Hodge. At the moment the situation is on for a quick one. Rankin doesn't look too happy about the position of the wall. Hunt! Quickly seized upon by Beardsley. Lineker checking back when he might have gone straight on. Trevor Stephen is unmarked. Gary Stevens coming up on the right. Four in the area. Lineker! Barry, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's an absolute honour to have you on you were the last president of of Windsor and Eton and so many of the supporters I've been speaking to saying that can't wait to hear some of your stories so thank you for, for joining my pleasure my pleasure I hope I can remember sufficiently quite a long career <laughs> I'm sure you will now listen I've got a number of questions I'm going to throw at you and hopefully nothing tricky is in there but I'd like to start by winding, rewinding the clock back to the beginning of your broadcasting career. And like, what got you into broadcasting? And was commentating always the route that you wanted to go down? Uh, 
No, I wanted to be a doctor and in a stupid moment uh, moved over to dentistry and in a very short space of time realised that that was a huge mistake <laughs> and Her Majesty was kind enough to say, we think it's your time to come into the army and the army changed my life. Uh, I nearly stayed there actually because I, I, I loved my national service and I was in during the Cuba crisis uh, and that extended and I may well have been uh, one of the last few um, uh, before uh, national service was, uh, was stopped. So uh, I, had a, I had a very good, very good time. I've got a, a, a bottle, you know, one of those very big boot uh, things that people are challenged when you, when you drink them. Uh, if you don't get the, the heel right, it all comes suddenly flushing too much into your throat and chokes you. Um, uh, and it says, uh, from Barry's Bandits. So that gives you some idea of how I ran a platoon in the uh, Royal Army Service Corps. I love that. So then, so during your time with the forces, is that where you got into experience like radio and? Absolutely. Uh, I've told this story many times, um, but I can remember it pretty well. Going into the mess one night, my early days of being with my, my company, 113, uh, in Mulheim Ruhr in Germany, the engineering officer said to me, Oh, I gather you're you're on uh, on radio on BFN uh, Cologne on uh, on Sunday. So I said, well, no, not exactly. I said they've asked me a bit more square with the uh, results of the various services teams in the area. And he said, well, that's not what they've said. They've said join <laughs> in on Sunday and join Second Lieutenant Barry Davis. Um, <laughs> And of course, uh, I'm sure I was a total disaster and made lots of mistakes. <laughs> but they stayed with me, I think, probably truthfully, uh, because they didn't have anybody else. But I was following along uh, a line. Frank Moff used to work for Forces Broadcasting as well, where oh, he was okay. his national service. Um, so uh, th that is where the uh, where the, uh, the the bite bit, as it were. I, I mean, I. I wanted to give it a go. And I actually had, having got the extra six months, I picked up a, a second trip, <laughs> not for doing anything special. Um, but my commanding officer, it was a lovely, lovely chap, uh, commanding officer of the group, actually said to me, this is word for word, said, go out and give it a go. See if you, see if you, can, you can make it. Um, if you don't, we won't give you too long, but I'll make sure you can come back because he knew that was the alternative. Mm. And then he said, but if you don't give it a go, you'll always be saying to yourself, I could have been like that fellow David Coleman. <laughs> I was a bit different in character from him, but I learned a lot from him. You know, press on. It just happened to be 1966. Uh, and ITV were pretty much the new boys. Uh, in television sport, BBC had most of the con most of the uh, uh, major events uh, at their behest, um, and I was had my name 
put forward, I, I should say that I worked for a little bit for Angus Mackay, uh, right. for support. Uh, not quite as the tea boy, but close to when I started. <laughs> um, and he subsequently called me one of his boys, but he actually told Geraldton Stat that he should sack me because I was never actually fully employed. I worked on a Saturday afternoon for a princely sum of six guineas, made the tea quite often, and uh, you know, eventually moved from there. Somebody put me forward again. I worked for the Times for three years uh, under a gentleman called Jeffrey Green, who was the football and tennis reporter. Uh, another guy called Rex Bellamy. They were also very, very good for Barry Davis. I love it. Now, can you remember your first game and were you nervous? Uh, yes. Uh, I can remember my first game um, more for the, for, for, the, uh, for the BBC than I can re recall the first one for uh, ITV because after the World Cup, um, I, I managed to be one of their four commentators uh, and I was sent up to the northeast and uh, had the North Korea's defeat of Italy as probably the, the best match. Italy were a bit unlucky. They did have only 10 men for <laughs> the second half, but even so. Um, and it taught me how to identify, because I identified people not by the number on their back, because as, as Billy Wright once famously, uh, uh, was it Billy Wright? No, Wally Barnes, one of the two, famously said on air, um, when the, the, the number, the number uh, 23 or something scored a goal from one of the teams. And uh, he said, we don't build centre forwards like that. But the guy was in fact playing right back. But number nine was the centre forward in the minds of footballers at that yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, but the world, and the World Cup was new uh, to, uh, to England, really. Uh, They've been in a few, but probably not many had been had been covered. This was the first live covered. How so, special was it when you look back to have been involved in that 66? I sat next to Hugh Johns, who was a buddy of mine, uh, sadly no longer with us. Um, and he and I used to do a, a few tests for ITV when they were choosing their team. We did a match at Craven Cottage and we could hear each other's commentary. And we realised at the end of the match that we were actually guilty of finishing each other's sentences. But we both got the job, and he quite rightly got the role of being the one at Wembley. In theory, there was a one in four chance because John Bromley, lovely guy, uh, another one who helped Barry Davis and a lot of other people too, he, he, uh, he said we had to check in to see what we were going to do from the semi-finals on, the last matches. I rang him up as required, and I said, if you change Hugh Johns for any, for any of the other three of us, uh, the BBC are going to laugh their heads off. You've got to stay with him. He said, I had no other intention. <laughs> it was bad night. And I'm glad because, I mean, Kenneth Horse at home, bless him, would have eaten me for supper, as would David Coleman a few years later. In those early years when you begun, who was who would you say was your biggest, in, you know, you've mentioned a few names, who was your, like, your biggest influence? Well, the, the BBC people were all big names. I mean, Hugh Jones became mm. the biggest name uh, for ITV. Brian Moore was on radio, did the cup final, the World Cup final on radio. 
So really it was the main uh, BBC commentators, which were in all, like Kenneth Horsenham, David Coleman, also presented the shows, wanted to do everything, David, and <laughs> one, wanted them done his way. And, and our boss, it was a guy called Sam Leach. Yeah. Uh, I came from Fleet Street, from the Sun and another paper, I can't remember which. Um, but he once said to me, just, you sh you've got to watch David. Follow what he does. Do things his way. And I said, Sam, I will learn a lot from David Coleman. I know I will, and from a lot of other people as well. But I would rather fail as the first Barry Davis rather than succeed as a second David Coleman. So if I've done my research correctly, your first live game that you commentated was at the 1970 World Cup. You reminded me what my first match live was, and it was with ITV before the World Cup. And it was Chelsea against AC Milan uh, at Stamford Bridge. And sitting alongside me was no less a man than Jimmy Greaves. He's been a favourite all my life. I now known supporter of Tottenham Hotspur, was as a kid, forgot about it when I became a commentator. If anything, I was a bit harder on them than any other team. But Jimmy would write me little notes. It wasn't all everybody talking at the same time, as it, it tends to be a bit now. Um, and he would write me little notes and pass me. He was an enormous help. Um, and it was a great match, and, and Peter Osgood scored a brilliant goal. Um, and Chelsea won. And the following week, I did England against Germany, uh, West Germany. It was in the February, now before the World Cup. It was later that, uh, that spring, summer. And uh, that wasn't such a good match. Uh, it was who scored the goal, whether it was Hunt or Nobby Styles, was debated. And what part of their anatomy was suggested wasn't <laughs> usually in the in the books, <laughs> but uh, you know it taught me a lesson because I knew that uh, you would be told it was a good commentary if it was a good match, and probably the best commentaries are done when the match is awful, and you yeah. and you can say why and in a constructive way. A couple of so, questions there. Firstly, going back to Jimmy Greaves, how important was it for you to have the right? co-commentator alongside you? Uh, I suppose, uh, you know, some people preferred certain people to be a co-commentator uh, and some co-commentators preferred their commentator too. Mm. Um, it depends how you how you work. I mean, it, it's just grown so much now. I mean, I worked with Don Reilly for a while before he was the England manager uh, with Leeds and things and, and England matches. And, you know, he, he would answer my question that was, he didn't, I didn't have to pose. Why are A beating B? And what have team B got to do to turn it round? And he, he didn't comment on every save that's made or shot that, that's, that's, that's taken, uh, which happens now. And I suppose uh, slow motion brought that in. And I always felt that uh, the first slow motion should be the commentators. He knows what he said. He knows what he's not sure of. 
that means that the co-commentator has seen it twice. So, so that's better. That's better for him. Um, but now, I don't blame the commentators or the experts. I blame more the uh, the producers. I mean, we had a guy called Alec Weeks, who was the main producer on the BBC, and he would quite often would say, "Shut up! We've heard enough of you. Get, let's give us a bit of quiet." And I agree with that. Nobody yeah. does that. So one one young producer once said to me that I, I said, "Why didn't you tell me so and so?" Uh, this was a Monday or Tuesday after the, after a particular match. I said, I think he brought up the subject. I said, well, Why didn't you tell me? And he said, we, we, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell Motti. I said, Of course you could. I said, I'd be gr- grateful for you. I, I might be using an expression that I've used all my all my life and and irritating several people who live down the road. You know, I, I said anybody. He's entitled to be critical of the commentator, and some are, of course. It's it is a team game. With I mean, I love I love working with Trevor Brooking. I love working with Mike Lawrenson, who had a lovely style. The one off cut of of a, of a comment just had a little bit of sharpness about it. For sure, what I mean. <laughs> and I just loved it to. I didn't say anything for a few moments, so that people could just take in what did he say? You know. That was important to me. You also went on to commentate at about 10 World Cups, I think. Yes. Um, You had 35 years on Match of the Day. You've done FA Cup finals, European finals. When you reflect back and maybe starting with the World Cups, what were some of your favourite games and moments to commentate on when you look back at the World Cups? Gosh, there are too many. There are too many of them. I mean, I obviously enjoyed the whole thing. I was on a, on a joyride in '66. Glad that uh, John Bromley knew what he was doing and didn't suddenly ask me to do the final because uh, most of the time would have eaten me for lunch and tea and probably the next day's breakfast. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed some matches. Uh, Italy beating Mexico in the 70 World Cup. Yeah. Or in Germany, um, which should have been won by the Dutch. Uh, I did two or three of Holland's matches. Uh, Johan Cruyff is another one of my favourites. And I had done the final of the European Championship. Coleman was out of contract and having an argument. Morsenhoven decided to give up. Well, he, he didn't. He started working for Time Tees, but you know, I think most people felt that was a downward step on his part. One World Cup game, Argentina 1986. Oh, God. It was the best and worst moment, possibly, of my commentary career over a, a course of about seven or eight minutes, I think, between the two goals. I did not see the handball. You know, you're high up in the Azteca Stadium. Uh, I didn't see it. Jimmy hadn't spotted it, Jimmy Hill. And it was all right, except that I, I was stupid enough to try and find a reason um, and suggested that they were appealing for an offside. As the ball had come off the feet of one of the defenders to go up in the air where it was battled for, Schultz and uh, Maradona. Anyway, uh, eventually they got the replays going in London 
much more quickly than they did. And, and somebody was talking in my ear, he's going up now, etc., etc. touching the ball now, you know. So I was able to do it. I, I could. And then came the most the brilliant goal that I've ever had the pleasure to commentate on. Well, it wasn't wasn't really a pleasure because England were two down and I didn't see them coming back from two down. But when you think that Maradona was actually in the centre circle, inside his own half and facing his own goal when he received the ball, why none of the England uh, defenders wiped him out? I don't know whether they've lived to regret it. I don't know. But there were at least two of them that could have taken him down. But he just, it was just brilliant. Was it ever difficult to be impartial? Uh, one had to be conscious of it. You know, I'm looking at the match through English eyes. So there's bound to be a certain amount of, of looking at it from the English point of view and therefore speaking of it. But one has to be careful and give credit to the other side. And I gave him. And Maradona, all the credit he deserved for that goal. Now, another one, Italia 90. I, that was one of my favourite World Cups. And I remember, I remember your commentary against Cameroon. In... Well, I mean, I was quite, quite critical of England. I mean, England were damn lucky in that match. England were, were a nightmare uh, from having the advantage. They threw it away. God bless Lineker. I was, I was pulled Gary's leg over the years and saying, you know, you show me something for the, for the fact that I helped you build your name. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you remember England, 1896, England lost the first match, drew the second, went into the third match having to win and suddenly started playing. Said to Gary, look, People wouldn't know too much about this around the world if I hadn't been commentating. <laughs> so you've got to give me a bit of credit. Once the start of his career, I mean, he went off with the, with the top scorers list. Another tournament, uh, Euro 96. Yes. How good was that? Well, that much distance between my two hands, if you can see them, yeah. uh, away from being an absolute triumph. Although Motti was going to do the final, so I wouldn't have done the final. And the final was bore anyway, as it turned out, with, uh, with the boot that stretched, not expecting the pass. That's what he's told us. Uh, and it was, I also had the best game. Holland, yeah. I, I did that match. Although it wasn't live, it was live on ITV, but it was recorded. Probably the best performance I've ever seen from England. And I, I had, I was very lucky with that, uh, that European Championship because I went through semi-final two matches. What he did Scotland, I did the opening match and the third match, Holland, was just recorded. And the semi-final was greatest atmosphere Wembley's ever known. And they were so near. Should have won that game. Should have won that game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How special were those tournaments to be part of? I mean, I, I, I got paid for a hobby. Makes it difficult when you've given up because you, you've been having your hobbies uh, and you can't do them anymore. Going to Match of the Day now, so obviously 35 years of Match of the Day, I can imagine the amount of memories and favourite moments from all those years, but are there a couple that stand head and shoulders above anything when you look at all your years commentating domestically? There were so many, yeah. Every match has a different different quality. 
some matches where the match was great and the commentary was only ordinary. I don't know which match I was suddenly I would suddenly pick out. Was there a player though that you loved to commentate on? When you look at all the players, you just loved it because he could always do that bit of magic. Like you mentioned Maradona earlier. Yeah, I mean, I've always liked people who can, can play with the ball and can see things quickly. I mean, Jimmy was like that. Jimmy saw a goal on the halfway line um, because he had the pace. I mean, Gaza was always always fun. Uh, I can go back uh, when I was first taken to Tottenham by my uncle, who was a significant part of me being interested in football, Danny Blanchflower, going right back. No, I mean, there are there, there lots, there are too many players to, to, to pick one out of, you know, they, they tend to be international players. Obviously, throughout the career, you came out with some very famous lines. I remember one with Franny Lee, like, look at this and oh, wow, there's a look at his face. Um, yeah. And, oh, I say, uh, like, how natural were they? And and also, how much preparations do you have to put in as a commentator bit leading up to games? Uh, you have to do the basic homework, but I never, uh, none of the things that I've said were things that I wrote down. Mm. Uh, thoughts that occurred to me at the time. I mean, Franny Lee is a case in point. He was playing for Derby County against Manchester City. The club had let him go under a bit of a cloud at the time. Uh, and he was he just scored a goal, which in the end led Derby County to winning the championship. Uh, and he, he was like a schoolboy who realised what he'd done and couldn't quite believe it. And that's why I said, just look at his face. And in fact, the voice the voice cracked up cracked up a little bit, uh, and it goes through. It's not what a commentator says, but he should say it twice. Now, you obviously, everyone obviously knows you on your football stuff, but you covered a huge amount of sports yeah. outside football. Was yeah. was there a favourite sport? The one I was doing at the time. I mean, I loved Wimbledon. I got into figure skating simply as a presenter at the start, and then. Alan uh, Weeks wasn't particularly well at one stage, and I stood in at the championship, and that that, uh, that made them think that I, I would succeed him when he retired, and I did for a while. I had no ambition to do that. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I've enjoyed everything that I've done. Uh, there were times when I went to a badminton tournament when I quite hoped I would overhear somebody say, uh, oh, not him again. <laughs> um, but I never did catch that. So, I mean, I, I did something like 17 different sports, if you include Olympic Games. Uh, and I went to, I think, 17 Olympics, uh, summer and winter. Was it ever difficult when you're, like, when you're, say, at the Olympics and you're doing, obviously, commentating on lots of different sports in a yeah. short period of time? Was that ever challenging having to, you know, you got your head in one sport and then suddenly the following day you're commentating on another sport? Sometimes the same day. I remember one afternoon, Great Britain winning the hockey championship, which I loved doing hockey. I uh, played it a little bit at school. Um, and I had to go on to the finals, uh, ladies' finals, I think it was, of the uh, gymnastic competition, which, again, which I 
enjoyed and, and was very well supported by the uh, the experts or experts. I had two of them on the spot. Um, I, I said it before. I got paid for a hobby, and they, and they let me they let me carry on for quite a long while. <laughs> I think thirty five years at Wimbledon. Uh, I enjoyed interviewing players afterwards, particularly Andre Agassi. When he oh, what was he like? Fascinating guy. Fascinating guy. Did you find you had to prepare differently for different sports? Yes, I suppose what chart I would use would be different. Um, but yes, I did. Was there ever a was there ever a sport that you didn't get to cover? Obviously, you mentioned about seventeen sports you did cover. Was there ever a sport you didn't get to cover that you would have loved to have done? Yes, uh, you've added a second line to that. Uh, I would never have uh, commentated on golf because I don't know enough about it, and certainly not good enough to even clean a couple of clubs. Um, <laughs> there are sports that I, that I haven't been asked to cover. Cricket, if I could have been a, a cricket commentator like Richie Benno or John Harlock going back a bit, I would love to have done cricket, but I wanted to be to that sort of standard. Did you ever learn anything from commentators of other sports? Yes. When I, when I got some awards from, from Sports Writers Association, uh, I followed him in that particular award. Uh, Richie Benner had won at the end of the forum. I said, what an honour it was, not only to receive it, but to follow one of the greats of broadcasting. Because he was wonderful. Yeah. If, he, if he said that's close, he means he meant the umpire's blind as a bat if he doesn't give him out, uh, more often than not. Um, uh, and obviously he was a very good spin bowler and captain. So I mean, I had I had favourites among among other commentators. You learn you learn from listening to, to 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 any commentary. People ask me, did you develop a style? I mean, I suppose I I did sort of develop a way of doing it, but it's a sort of natural movement to other things and, and a relief that viewer uh, sitting in his living room uh, need to have time to think for himself. Or to have a conversation with somebody and too often these days there's so much talk going on you can't hear yourself think. i was going to ask you about like commentary today don't get me wrong there are some good commentators yeah 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 very but, much so and, and uh, you know i'm not saying i'm right and they're wrong but the style has changed and it didn't suit me and that's why that's why i didn't i mean people get surprised when i tell them the last match of the day I did. It was back in 2004. The only other match I did after that was Crystal Palace against West Ham on the weekend closest to the 50th anniversary of the program. Uh, and I, uh, I did, I did that match and didn't leave room for enough substitutes on my, on my sheet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise that they increased, uh, but, but they gave me a very good turnout at. at uh, do you think technology played a, has played a part in the kind of difference in commentary now? Yes. Yes, it has. It has. They're so much quicker than they were. I mean, when slow motion started, Motti and I never saw the slow motion. But when a goal was scored or an incident happened, we had to draw breath and say what we thought we'd seen. And then when we watched the programme at night, hoped that what we said was accurate. Um, 
And in more cases than not, it was a pretty good uh, comment from both of us. Do you miss it? Uh, yes, if I would be allowed to do it my way. But I wouldn't be. And that's why I didn't renew my contract in 2004. Because yeah. I knew that if I didn't, I wasn't going to get live matches. Uh, and if I didn't get at least a percentage of the live matches, which I had up to that point, people would never be able to make a judgment of me because, you know, um, Match of the Day, I think, is, is, a, is a great program, a still a great program. But, you know, it, it's the excitement level, obviously, is, is brought together. So the commentator's more likely to be excited. The up and, up and down, the flow of, of commentary isn't, isn't like it. I would like it to be in a live match. Now, Barry, post your obviously days at Match of the Day and your commentary days, mm. you were the last president of Windsor and Eton. What did that mean to you to be president and supporting your local team? And and also, how important is non-league football in you know in the in the football pyramid in this country? Well, I can tell you that it was very important for a couple of reasons. Um, I had started watching football at uh, my local team when I lived in North Finchley, and they had quite a good side there. They played in the Athenian League, and they had a very good player called George Rock, uh, who played on the left wing and was an excellent player, and was signed up by Spurs and played for England and so on and so forth. So in a way, I started in non-league football. Sadly, uh, the Windsor and Eton Club is not at that sort of standard now, as I understand it, there are a lot of, lot of young players and it's really good that they're playing and so on and so forth. I was, I was much more a, a figurehead, if you like. I didn't get involved in the, in the running of the club, although I sometimes asked an opinion, sometimes would express it, but not publicly, mm. um, you know, to other than the person who'd asked me for a bit of advice on something. But no, I enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's um, it, it was it was nice, and, and you know I I've, I don't live in Windsor anymore. I lived in in Barnes for a little over ten years now. But obviously, I couldn't carry on doing that. Um, I th think the standard of play had come down quite a lot before I left. But obviously, now it would be ridiculous to uh, travel up to to Windsor. But I I enjoyed being asked, and I, I enjoyed it quite a few games watching during that time totally and you're very you're always much welcomed to the games i always remember it was always great to see you there well uh, people, people by and large uh, michael have been extremely generous to me the chap in the street at football grounds and so on and so forth have been very nice they, they feel if they want to make a criticism they can come up and make it uh but they sometimes come up and remember lines or make a, a generous observation. And um, I mean, that's, that's been very nice. I'm going to close, Barry, with three quick fire questions. Okay. Hopefully quite funny, fun ones. Um, yeah. But we'll see if it does test the memory. So the first one, who was the hardest player in any sport which had the, the hardest name to pronounce? Was there one name that you always tricked you? 
Oh, crikey. Well, I mean, obviously with a few foreign names. Mm. Did you have to practice much, though? So when you saw you were you were doing say like north korea for example you mentioned did you have to did you have to look at those names and really study how to pronounce them yes but i could talk to the interviewer uh, to the uh, person that i had with the team who you know transferred for uh, uh translated for reporters and so on and so forth i i i was very lucky with them uh i don't think i completed i started saying this before but because I did North Korea, they did me a favour. Because the numbers on the backs just meant a player, not his position. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would struggle to tell you what number Bobby Charlton got. I, because Bobby Charlton is Bobby Charlton. I didn't need, need to see the number to know him. Or George Best. I haven't mentioned George Best. And, and there, a huge favourite, huge favourite. Did a, did a programme with him. The maestro series that I did, uh, so gifted. Yeah, what was it? What was it? Oh yeah, um, I managed to, to get to be able to identify with a flick of the fingers nine, uh, twenty-one of the twenty-two players that they had on the pitch, walking around, so on and so forth. One of them uh, I couldn't identify. He came in and played, I think, in the last match. Can't remember his name now, but. I couldn't identify him, and I finally realised why. Because I worked off pictures, had pictures of them all, and looked at them, and that that helped me. Um, and he had long hair in his picture, and before he left North Korea, he was given a crew cut, and he looked entirely different. Okay, favourite stadium that you ever commentated in? Was there a favourite stadium you loved anywhere in the world? I think the Azteca would be pretty close to the favourite. The Real Madrid Stadium, I liked for the atmosphere, uh, but the commentary position was level with the HDR line, which didn't help. I liked the old Wembley more than the new Wembley, but that's because of my age. I mean, an atmosphere at a, at a stadium is built and is different from place to place. But I think maybe the Azteca, because it, it was the best match. Uh, and then Wembley. Of course, for the uh, semi-final, that uh, was the making of a future England manager. Very final question, and you won't have been expecting this question. Okay. Of all those stadiums that you commentated at, which had the best catering facilities? For <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't eat much around match day. Uh, BBC, I don't know whether they still do, they used to supply food for us. We rarely went uh, to have anything at, at, at a restaurant close to. Um, it would either be BBC or something that sandwich that my wife had given me before leaving home if it was sufficiently close. If I'd gone from a hotel, sometimes they would give us a couple of sandwiches. I didn't like to eat too much before again, so I can't give you a particularly good answer. <laughs> Well, listen, Barry, thank you so much. Honestly, it's been an absolute honour and privilege to have you on the podcast. So a massive thank you. And I, I really, you know, I've really enjoyed it. I'm very grateful that at my age, people still remember me. They absolutely do. They absolutely do. So thank you. And thank you to every one of you who's downloaded this episode. Thank you. And look forward to bringing you another guest in a few weeks' time.
shoot. Scalacci. Well, we think there's some concern about the arrival of that gentleman. England tightening it down the middle. And has Miller! And the referee says penalty. Kunde, who's going to take it? With a little shuffle, scores! Miller makes it look so easy, a kick in! And Cameroon lead! So smooth! Had to come back to get it, and then Walsh is past two. And thumps the left foot! They are unbelievably smooth in their movement. This is Maradona, and he gets the ball through, can he just score? One by Massing. Right, Lineker, penalty! Never a more vital penalty for England. It's all square!